0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, trashaltroncom slash agony. You're listening to Two of a Perfect Pair. My name is Rick Kleffel. I'm your host. This is a podcast where we bring together two writers who have written different books about the same subject and try to find out what is happening in between those two books. My guests today are Kim Stanley Robinson. He's the author of The Mars Trilogy and more recently, 40 Signs of Rain, 50 Degrees Below, 60 Days and Counting, and New York 2140 is his most recent book. Thank you for joining me, Stan. Thanks, Rick. Good to be with you again. And with me is Jeff Goodell. He's a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and the author of five books, including How to Cool the Planet, Geoengineering, and the Audacious Quest to Fix the Earth's Climate, Big Coal: The Dirty Secret Behind America's Energy Future, and his newest book is The Water Will Come. Thank you for joining me,
1: Jeff. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, both of you have been on the front lines of this for a long time. I mean, you are well ahead of the curve on this. And so I'd like to uh, each of you to tell me what was it that made you decide this is a topic worth writing about? And we'll start with uh, Stan.
2: I have a hard time remembering, but um, my Mars Trilogy was about terraforming Mars. And really, that's the changing of a planetary environment. And so all along it was obvious to me that this was one way of talking about what was going on on earth and so i have the feeling that the the topic is older and and better known to a wide range of scientists than we're really remembering so for me it began with the mars trilogy then i went to antarctica with the national science foundation their artist and writers program and uh, the scientists in antarctica were talking about this also And then I wrote that novel and because I got introduced to the National Science Foundation and the various things they do there in D.C., I thought they would be interesting to write about what would they do dealing with climate change. So it's kept coming back uh, through those years. Jeff?
1: Well, for me, you know, I've been covering climate change as a journalist for 15 years or so. I never really thought much about sea level rise. There's so many things to cover when you're writing about climate change. But for me, I think the, the moment was really Hurricane Sandy. Um, I wasn't in the city at the time, but I came down the day after. And, you know, wandering through the Lower East Side and seeing the, you know, what what uh, nine feet of, of storm surge had done to the city, you know, really kind of woke, woke me up. And it was a very kind of visceral experience, just sort of the smell and the, you know, people carting their waterlogged furniture out and the cars all underwater, you know, waterlogged also. And, and um, I, I called a friend of mine who's a, a climate scientist at Columbia and was talking to him about this. And he said to me, you know, one way to think about what happened here is as a kind of dry run or dress rehearsal for sea level rise. He said, imagine that nine feet of water kind of coming into lower Manhattan, but then never going away. And um, that's sort of, you know, that's one way of imagining um, what we might be facing by the end of the century. And then he said to me, if you really want to blow your mind, go down to Miami and think about that. Uh, and so I did. And when I went to Miami, it was a whole kind of other story. And I immediately saw that a, a place how vulnerable a place like Miami was. And, and that really got me going on the book. And I started to think about what the impact would be uh, on, you know, of rising seas on, on cities around the world.
0: You know, um, one of the things that I I thought was interesting about all of this, uh, there's an idea from Stanislaw Lem of what he calls the pericalypse. This is the apocalypse that has already come to pass but went unnoticed in the general haste. And from my reading of both of your books, uh, global climate change and sea level rise is an excellent example of this, something that is already preordained And this fighting something that already exists is really tough, isn't it? And I'd like you each to talk about how you approached it as writers and just as thinkers and how we can approach it. Stan?
2: Well, I'd be interested to hear what Jeff says about this because – I don't think it's um, absolutely already a done deal, a massive amount of sea level rise, uh, because we just don't know how stable the ice on Antarctica is and how quickly it will melt. So certainly the timing of it is, uh, to my uh, understanding, unknown. And then also, because Jeff has written a book about geoengineering, he may already know about this, that there have been at least a few plants floated. And that was true in my Science in the Capital, where I thought it was a kind of a joke. But the Potsdam Institute actually worked out uh, what it would entail. The idea that we pump seawater back onto the top of the Antarctic ice cap, where it would freeze again. And uh, the Potsdam Institute concluded it would take about 20% of the electricity that all of humanity makes right now to pump that water up there and stabilize sea level. It's definitely geoengineering. But when you think about how important the coastal cities of the world are to human civilization, uh, not just trade, but also agriculture and aquaculture, um, it might be thought worth trying to um, uh, do some geoengineering to stabilize sea level rise.
1: Jeff? Well, I, uh, on the first point about how much we, you know, how much of this is already kind of foreordained for with sea level rise, you know, I think you know it's pretty clear that um, some level of sea level rise is is going to happen. Um, that's why I called my book "The Water Will Come," not "The Water Might Come," uh, <laughs> or, the, or "The Water Will Come" if we don't all switch to solar panels or something like that. Um, the question is, uh, how, how much and how fast and the, as, um, Kim knows the stability of West Antarctica is really the big question right now about, um, whether we're going to see, you know, the IPCC or not the IPCC, but NOAA, the latest, you know, studies, uh, the latest projections from NOAA on sea level rises, you know, the high end is about seven and a half feet at the end of this century. And to get that kind of sea level rise, we would you know it would need to have a major contribution from Antarctica. And you know it's not clear whether how how fast that could happen. Um, but it is clear that even if we stop cutting carbon emissions tomorrow, which of course we're not going to do, we're still going to see a significant amount of sea level rise uh, in this century and into the next century. Cutting carbon is really important because we don't know what the tipping point is with Antarctica. And it may be that if we can, you know, radically cut carbon and and cool, cool the earth um, a little bit that way, we can stave off uh, the instability there. Um, But with geoengineering, interestingly, you know, I I did write a book about it. And and I do think that there's, it's inevitable that we're going to try this. Um, I think the pumping of water up, of of the seawater up onto Antarctica and refreezing and all that is uh, not a likely scenario, although a kind of, it's got a kind of poetry to it. But I think the more likely scenario that we're going to see is some kind of um, spraying particles into the stratosphere, um, creating what amounts to artificial volcanoes that might uh, reflect away a little bit of sunlight and and act like a kind of parasol and actually immediately um, cool the planet. And there's a lot of problems with that. Um, You know, it's not a, a quick fix that it doesn't deal with things like ocean acidification. But I think that there's a certain inevitability, given the directions we're going, that we'll try stuff like that. and. I know a lot of really smart and ethical scientists who are thinking really hard about it. Um, uh, and that's something that I think that we need to, you know, think about in a, in a sort of uh, with good scientists because um, I think it's so cheap and so powerful that someone's going to do it. And the more we know, the better we are, better off we are. You know, for me, it, it interests me because both of you
0: are working in uh, essentially, you're looking at the near future uh, at the what realm of what used to be science fiction, but you're both looking at it with such um, a fact-based, present-based understanding of the science and what's possible that it becomes almost like a, there's a there's a obviously, Jeff, you're writing nonfiction, and Stan, your fiction is so based on on reality. So I'd like you to talk about you know just. I guess predicting the future, how do you feel about that? And given the import of what could happen to us, uh, how you know loudly do we want to say this is what we predict the future to be and we better do something about it or else?
2: Well, I don't like this term predicting the future because it can't be done and mm-hmm. you don't want to be claiming impossible things. On the other hand, I don't want to say the opposite, that science fiction is only a metaphor for our situation right now. It's more like a modeling exercise or like prophecy in the sense of if we keep doing these things, we will get to this conclusion state inevitably following the laws of physics. So it's, a, it's like a scenario, it's like a modeling exercise, and it's like the ancient power of, of prophecy – but it's not prediction in the sense that you get out of futurists or futurology, not the way I think of it. I think science fiction is a little more playful and a little more uh, wide-ranging of an art form than, than the idea of prediction. Now, um, the situation we're in now is that there are uh, inevitable uh, results to how much carbon we've pumped out into the atmosphere, that we can see... No matter how many scenarios you run, no matter what kind of parameters you put in to begin with, there are going to be some changes coming. So then if you want to do science fiction as a form of, of a realism, of forward-looking realism, which I sometimes want to do, then you need to take that into account and you end up writing about climate change more than once. Not you know because it's such a fun subject, but because it's, uh, it's what's coming. Now, the what's interesting i think about our particular topic today sea level rise is that how much is coming and how fast are really hard for the scientists to gauge because of the not just west antarctica but these really big basins of ice in east antarctica the totten glacier the wilkes um, uh, victoria glacier uh, or glacial basins is a better way to put them gigantic watersheds that are ice sheds with um, And the James Hansen paper from 2016 is the crucial document in this case because they began to study these ice forms on East Antarctica in a way that hadn't been looked at. And as much ice might fall into the sea off of West Antarctica or slide in or up, uh, East Antarctica has about twice as much. And, of course, Greenland is not an inconsiderable factor either. So um, sea level is probably going to rise. I agree with Jeff on that. And I just wonder if if it rises enough. I mean, of course the the particulates in the atmosphere is the cheapest and most effective uh, geoengineering method that we've thought of yet. But now people are thinking um, the sea level being where it is is so important to civilization. I wonder, you know, it's it's certainly not complicated pumping water somewhere else. We do it all the time and we have oil pipelines so the technology is, is already exists to pump this water around, and it wouldn't a- automatically have to go up to the, to the uh, polar cap of, south of Antarctica. It could perhaps be sent into uh, what used to be lakes and are now playas in uh, North Africa, in Asia, even in North America, uh, a salt-and-sea type thing. Now, these are really uh, um, interventions that would change weather patterns and ecologies in a radical way but um if the coastlines are at stake possibly people would make a, a a kind of an analysis that suggested that we do these things so i guess i'd like to hear from jeff about that james hansen paper what he thought of it and then also um you know come back to sea level rise as the as the big problem staring us in the face
1: Um well with uh, on the hansen paper um i think that that was obvious hansen is um, obviously the godfather of uh climate change science i've spent a good amount of time with him he's uh, he's a you know a brilliant brilliant man i think that particular paper is um you know um, ha- there's been some issues from other scientists about it a- about um some of, some of the the work in the in that paper i think that um uh, I, don't, I don't want to say that it's been, um, how do I put it, um, discredited or anything, but I think that a lot of questions have been raised about that. Um, well,
2: yeah, it was a weird piece of work. There were 18 yeah. co-authors, and it was sort of like a a, a a statue made of pickup sticks. I mean, every piece of that case was questionable, and so the larger case itself was questionable, so that it was almost like a polemic or a, or an artwork or a piece of science fiction.
1: Yeah, I think the I think the the paper in in my work that has been the most influential in the last couple of years uh, with ice science and glaciers is um, the modeling done by um, Rob DeCanto uh, about ice cliff collapse and the understanding and also uh, Richard Alley at, at Penn State. You know uh-huh. they they've they've really you know a, a lot of the ice science up until recently has been focused on the sort of melting and melt rate and how fast a glacier can slide into the sea and all that. And the understanding that um, there's inherent instabilities in ice cliffs and that ice can um, melt into the sea at a certain rate, but it can collapse into the sea much faster. And that The way you get these big pulses, as you so uh, accurately and brilliantly point out in your book Kim, about these, you know, the first pulse, the second pulse, the way you get these pulses is by these ice cliffs collapsing into the sea. And that's a likely one possible and likely mechanism for that. And this this modeling by um, Rob DeCondo at um, uh, University of Massachusetts is um, the sort of, I, I think, the paper that resonates right now most in the sort of climate uh, community. Mm. Um, but with the, the geoengineering, you know, with pumping the water back up, you know, who knows? I mean, I think the big factor, obviously, in how we as humans will respond to all this is, you know, uh, psychological. I mean, how people will respond to a pulse of sea level rise and how people will respond to drowning cities. I mean, your book paints a very incredibly wonderful, not wonderful, but a vivid and, um, uh, hopeful almost sort of scenario of living among these, uh, the city, uh, along inside in New York and, and the kind of, um, there's a kind of, you know, uh, It reminds me of one physicist who told me that humans are like cockroaches, you know, that they survive anywhere. And there's this incredible sense of resiliency and moving on and and living in this place. But who knows if that will be how uh, people will respond to, you know, the drowning of cities and, you know, whether they will retreat more from the coastlines, whether they will, you know, the idea of coming together and putting the amount, getting the amount of money and cooperation it would take to to you know actually build a structure that would pump water from the sea up onto the onto the ice in in antarctica to moderate sea level i mean that's an enormous like cooperative expensive undertaking and um you know it's like uh, we have a hard time building a subway line um uh, yeah. so i i <laughs> i wonder about that and the thing about the the sulfate particles in the atmosphere is that it's you know, it's cheap, it's easy, you know, you know, you know, Bill Gates could do it by himself, basically, you know, or, 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 you know, 10, you know, random billionaires get together and decide they're going to take, you know, to this problem in hand. Um, uh, so there's there, it's the sort of uh, opportunity of that is so it's, it's so easy that it's hard to imagine for me, that That somebody won't try this, and God knows what it will do in the sense of messing up weather patterns and how effective it will be. But the modeling, you know does does show that um, you can actually you know, uh, you know lower the temperature of the planet pretty quickly by doing this,
2: yeah, and we have more than models. We have the volcanoes that have gone off and have done that very thing. and and there's a, something comforting, too, in that if it worked like volcanoes, then after a few years, the effects would dissipate. And if it happened to wreck the monsoon or do something else unexpectedly bad, uh, it would be over with in, in five or ten years, and you could think it over. And uh, it could be like an ongoing experiment. And right. I do think that will uh, uh, be very much on the, on the front burner and being discussed by people as these temperatures keep shooting up faster than we expect, uh, but also there's no, there's no necessity that we choose between geoengineering methods. We may have a kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation if some of these awful tipping points get tipped over, um, in which case we may be trying, it may be that the work of civilization and the, the, the way that a capital accumulated capital gets reinvested is, is by doing uh, climate r- mitigation work and landscape restoration. That may simply become what civilization does.
1: Right, right. You,
0: you know, uh, that's that brings me to something I thought was really interesting about both of your works, is uh, you both look quite closely at the uh, fiscal implications of all of this. I, and... I think you work so much in parallel. Uh, Stan, you, you imagine uh, underwater derivatives, <laughs> literally underwater derivatives. And, and Jeff, you talked about the way that people in Miami are kind of like gambling, you know, betting on how long they have before they really have to get out. And I think that shows a kind of a fiscal inventiveness and fiscal solutions to this that are, might make it a, more tolerable for us at least.
2: Well, speaking as a a critic of capitalism, I would say that our current financial uh, regime is part of the problem and is the mispricing of the environment and human labor are the reasons that we're in this fix in the first place. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not so much fiscal inventiveness, but revolution that I'm calling for that, the idea that um, shareholder value and quarterly profit are the only rubrics of success for civilization is is demonstrably uh, wrong and destructive. And so in my book, it's somewhat of a satire. I have the, because of sea level rise, which I set at 50 feet, which is a huge amount, I needed to put it into the year 2140. But in terms of talking about our financial systems, I'm basically talking about our failure to respond to the 2008 uh, Great Recession. So um, the two time schemes in my book are are, um, not well matched to each other, and that's just the way science fiction works. Um, I had to do it, so I did it. But in terms of how we do things now, we would have to set a price on carbon, like the president of the World Bank said a few years back, and we would have to then start paying ourselves to survive, which is it sounds ridiculous to put it that way. But that's what it
0: comes down to. Wow. Uh, Jeff, what what does your look at the finance aspect of this tell you?
1: Well, I you know, um first of all, I want to say that the the this financial part of Kim's book is why I really loved. that all the derivatives of sea level rise and people you know shorting sea level rise and all kinds of things like that. I mean, it was just sort of brilliantly imagined, and it's it's it was most surprising and 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 um in a certain way telling a part of the story that you create because. It, it is a satire, but it's also like how we humans think about this stuff, especially in New York. So I don't know. I, I, I really love it. Well, thank you.
2: Yeah, um, I had I had great fun with it, I have to say. It was hilarious.
1: It's hilarious. Uh, it's really and fun to read. And cutting at the same time. I mean, I was I was just I just loved it. Um. So I'm I, I my, you know, thinking about this focuses on the sort of near term in the sense of um, what's going to happen when the um, the The sort of inevitability of this um, sinks in. when When people who are living in near the coast realize that the water is only going one way, which is up, and that the flooding that they're feeling already in places like Norfolk or in Miami or in uh, Texas or even in the Bay Area, um, is only going to get worse, and as it gets worse, their property values are going to be worth less, and so there's going to be a, a reaction to that, of course, and some people are going to sell and leave, and the property values, um, some in some areas, well, property will have to be you know abandoned or bought out because the flooding will get so bad, and and. What I foresee in, in the sort of near term is a, a real crisis for for local city uh, city and state governments, uh, federal government too, for that matter. But of you know, property values declining, going down at the exact same moment that that cities and counties and states are spending more and more for sort of defense systems, for seawalls, for beach renourishment, erosion control, roads washed out litigation over all that stuff. And you can easily see a kind of downward economic spiral that happens. Bond prices, uh, credit prices go up for, for cities uh, that, that these right now, county commissioners and things that I talk to are really, really afraid of. And I think in a certain way, the engine of denial in places like Miami is exactly that, because if they fear that once the sort of reality of this sinks in and the, and the calculations begin that, oh, this water is coming up. The value of this real estate is only going to go down. I'm getting out. That's going to be a major crisis for um, these cities. And I think it's going to happen much sooner than than anyone thinks.
0: Stan, you know, I, did, I really love the aspect of your book as a criticism of of capitalism and I think that the the satire aspects were so much fun to read but you mentioned a really important part and I think both of you guys do this is the import of stories individual human stories that we can relate to whether they're fictional in terms of you made up the people or, or as Jeff does just going out and talking to people who are living there so I I'd like each of you to talk about how the human stories that we hear about this are really critical. I think they're a critical part of whatever happens going forward. Stan?
2: Well, one thing about uh, that science fiction always does that I, uh, that I love extremely is to uh, think about what it will be like after we're gone for the people that will uh, follow us, the, our descendants, that will have our DNA and uh, will be uh, related to us. And we won't be there, but they'll be like us genetically, at least, and culturally, there's a lot of, um, you know, path dependency, they're going to be like us in a lot of ways. Well, they're going to be coping with whatever situation they run into. And I, I think it's really interesting, the transition point that Jeff's talking about of moving from denial to uh, acceptance of the reality that sea level's rising in these places that are right at one foot above sea level. That's going to be a really interesting moment full of interesting stories. For me, pushing it out 150 years was valuable because those people, nobody alive now will be alive then, and those people will be thinking of the situation as normal, and if New York, which is blessed by a tremendous um natural landscape and infrastructure if that new york people will stick to and they will adapt and parts of it will become the super venice as i predicted this i think will happen places that are absolutely low-lying everywhere like miami well it gets a lot weirder they might become a floating city like like the the blocks that my um my character franklin Gard designs a kind of uh, floating city which isn't exactly the same as Venice, uh, um, and Vi- Miami, with its limestone ground underneath it, so that water comes up from below, has got spectacularly difficult problems in staying a city. So, um, the financial crash that might come as people realize that is that, as Jeff pointed out, is something that's really, it's really going to be an interesting moment, and and someone ought to write that. That will be not my not my angle it's more like something maybe by paolo bacigalupi a more dystopian and and distressed uh, culture and the so in other words after the moment of distress people are going to adjust but in the moment of distress it's going to be chaotic and and uh, and painful
0: jeff tell us about how you use stories and the stories that interest you
1: well, I mean, for me, you know, uh, as a journalist, especially on a subject like, you know, climate change, it's, you know, there's so much data and there's, you know, there's science and science is, of course, what, the, the, you know, this, this is the story that science is telling us So on one meta level, that's what I'm writing about. And, and, you know, I'm trying to tell the story that, that science is telling us, but I, I to communicate this, it's very difficult to do it through data, and I mean, I, I I I struggle a lot with how to use information in 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 a book like this, and and kind of keeping it at a minimum while at the same time, you know, getting the key concepts and the key ideas, you know, that science uh, that science is telling us across. And I really worked hard in this book to give a feeling of what this crisis this struggle this moment is like now as people who live on the beach that i talk to are realizing this that that, that their houses are going to be going under as they're realizing that they built a seawall and the seawall is falling over and they thought the seawall would protect them and why did their neighbor build a seawall to put more water into their onto their house you know and what are the impacts of, you know, of, of people who have worked to save the Everglades and realizing that the Everglades are, you know, goners uh, is going to be a goner because of even a small amount of sea level rise. So I'm trying to capture the sort of human em- emotional and, you know, psychological moments at this sort of early stage of this awareness, you know, of of the struggle of denial, the struggle of acceptance the struggle of the fear of the future, um, the anticipation of the future, uh, architects who are um, trying to imagine the future. I was just in Miami yesterday with an architect who's designing a platform, exactly what Kim was talking about—a kind of platform city—and the the hopes that oh, here's an idea that we can use and um, that 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 can that can save us in a way. And I, I just find this sort of like, you know, we're not at the drama yet of like, you know. You know, condo diving, you know, in in Miami, that's not where this story is. And just as Kim sets his story in the aftermath of the two big pulses, i my story, of course, by necessity, because I'm a journalist writing about the here and now. But I find it fascinating. This is like this sort of introduction to what's to come and capturing this moment when this sort of dawning awareness is happening is what and telling that story is what I'm trying to do.
0: what I really love about the the crosstalk between reading, your two books for me is that it's the boiling frog as the as the water begins to get hot and it's just sitting there thinking great and it's the boiling frog having been boiled. I think that that crosstalk allows us to see um, that as as I think Jeff says is that what we'll have to face is. Not just the water. We can't do much about the, any of the physics of this, and we don't even really know that much about the physics of this. But what we know is suggests that the world is going to get better, worse before it gets better, and that uh, what we do know is ourselves and our civilization, and that's something we can change. As Jeff points out, I mean, we don't have but we don't have to live on the coast as it but as kim also points out our civilization at this point really does depend upon the coast so i'd like the two of you to talk about you know how how tied are we to our current setup
2: well it's a massive infrastructure and we have depended on it for the entirety of industrial civilization so um it it will be. Oops. But on the other hand, we change from one technology base to another, you know, every every 50 years or so in terms of energy sources. And and um, that keeps turning over faster and faster. So part of the work of civilization is building a new technological base um, as to the I mean, a couple times Jeff's talked about beaches. And I want to bring up the fact that the beaches are doomed and that this is a tragic thing that um, I grew up on beaches myself in Orange County, and they're what kept me sane. And it's a it's a terrible um, truth that the two places on Earth I love the most, the beaches and the, the high glacier-covered high mountains, are both in terrible trouble. And we don't need much sea level rise for all the beaches of the world to be gone, and that's a worldwide culture that was particularly vibrant and and fun. And so I imagine this This is the kind of imaginative response I think Jeff was referring to that you think to yourself, well, we can fix it somehow. Like maybe we can dredge up all that sand and just move it however high sea level goes. We just dredge the sand up and dump it on higher sea level and we become ecological landscape managers and we rebuild the beaches at whatever level sea level is at. But this is a partial and desperate, it might be a, a, a fantasy of a response to an extremely horrible situation. Um. So I think we're in this moment where um, the dawning realization of how bad things can get might change things. I mean, I would like to say that that both Jeff and I owe something to Bill McKibben, who reviewed our books together in the Washington Post and and gave them a big boost. And McKibben, with this 350.org, he means 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, that's a science fiction goal in and of itself because we're now at 400, and we don't have any obvious mechanisms for. down from there for going carbon negative and yet if we set that as a goal for our civilization a technological goal we could um, mitigate and dodge some of the worst aspects of what's going to be a mass extinction event so um, what I think all this talk is is a way of getting us prepared for making the huge moves of aiming civilization at this problem and so it's it's necessary work but there's a lot of uh, fear
0: involved well, so jeff what we what and i uh, i like what you're saying uh, stan and but but i think too that i mean we are in a moment of preparing to make a decision and these kind of writings these kind of stories really help us understand a that such a decision needs to be made and b the ramifications of that decision being made or not being made, and but this is a big ship. It's going to turn very slowly, isn't it, Jeff?
1: It's uh, yeah. It's going to turn slowly and fast. I mean, it's going mm. to do both. I think, um, and that's the hard thing about it. You know, I, I mean, I've been writing about climate change for 15 years, and it's interesting to see, you know, to watch the the the, the kind of changes. You know, on one hand, you know, nothing has changed. The 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 only real you know, metric that really matters is the, the the parts uh, the parts of uh, per billion of uh, per million of atmos of CO2 molecules in the atmosphere that Kim referenced with 350.org, and it's and that number since the 50s has just been going up and up and up and up. We know we as humans have done a very poor job of doing anything to mitigate this problem, right? So you have. It's really easy to think, you know, it's been 30 years of talking about this, basically, and, you know, we're not basically doing anything to 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 get ourselves uh, uh, to avert this future that science has been telling us has been coming for a long time. On the other hand, you have incredibly hopeful things happening, you know, with new technology, um, you know, clean energy, all kinds of things like that. And more importantly, I think that, I can feel people beginning to process this psychologically, right? People are beginning to see and feel this for themselves with the, you know, everything from, you know, the storms to the wildfires to the higher tides and stuff. And there's this sort of um, kind of massive recalculation of um, our place in the world, I think sl- that is slowly happening. And I think, you know, I think the big idea that's, Coming and it's, I'm trying to, you know, that's even coming to me is that we're moving into this world where, you know, change is what's constant. We don't know how big those changes are going to be. We don't know how dramatic and how sudden they're going to be. We don't know if we're going to get a big pulse of if West Antarctica is going to go in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. We know that it's unstable. But, you know, writing this book about sea level rise, you know, it's made me understand that. You know, we built all this infrastructure on the coast around the world with this idea that, you know, the water is here and the land is here because that's how it looks to us now. And, you know, that's how it will forever be. And now we're realizing what a foolish thought that was and that, you know, this 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 boundary between land and sea is going to be it has always been changing. But now because of what we're doing with dumping CO2 to the atmosphere, it's going to be changing even faster and we're going to have to figure out a way to live with that. We're going to have to figure out a way to adapt to that. I mean, one of the most um, revealing moments for me in reporting this book was going to Lagos, where I spent a couple of weeks in these water slums where people just basically live in you know, on shacks on on stilts in the water and go everywhere by boat. And you talk to them about sea level rise and changes. and they're like, we don't care. We can you may know, build our houses higher, you know. Uh, in an afternoon, if we need to. And four feet, five feet, six feet, we don't care, it's fine with us. And and you realize it's only our hubris of thinking about these, that nature is a fixed thing. And so we're going to build these massive hotels and railroads and roads and everything right on the water with this idea that it's not going to change. It's the very sort of infrastructure of the fossil fuel age and and the mindset that went with it that is creating our problems.
2: People will... People will adapt. People will adapt. We're good at that. We are like cockroaches. I'm not very worried about people compared to all the rest of the big mammals on the planet. The problem is um, uh, the mass extinction event that we're going to be causing, and that you can't get back from. We can do all kinds of mitigations. We can change the human infrastructure. We can even change the climate itself by messing with the CO2 levels and. We might even be able to move seawater around, but we can't come back from extinctions. So um, I I guess I would say that focusing on uh, um, limiting the number of extinctions to the minimum possible given where we are now should be the overriding goal. And the hopeful thing I see is the, um, the change in people's consciousness and the Paris Accord. That Fifteen years ago, if I had said in 15 years that, that every nation state on Earth will sign a Paris accord where we cut about half the amount of CO2 that we need to cut from, from our um, emissions, which, you know, getting halfway there is either the, the hard part or the easy part, depending on how you think about it. But in any case, it wouldn't have been conceivable 15 years ago. It would have been utopian science fiction. And yet it got done. And, of course, we have this Trump moment of objection, but I don't think that will last very long. I think everybody will be on board and the the momentum towards coping with this and trying to avoid the mass extinction event might increase as as people become more aware of of just how bad it could get if we don't deal with it.
0: yeah, I think that's a common theme of both your books is that you know it's human ability human adaptability and human psychology will allow uh, are more flexible than anything else in this equation and that we can uh that there is reason for hope because that is what humans do best in many ways
1: yeah i mean i i agree with that but i i think also the point about the sort of you know kind of mass extinction of you know uh, other creatures and other life on on this planet as a result of the changes that we're pushing is you know a great tragedy on so many levels and one that is you know betsy colbert wrote a wonderful book you know the sixth extinction that really mm. you know captured this and um you know uh what we're doing to the sort of, you know, bountifulness and uh, m- kind of miraculousness of the planet um, is is just the sort of uh, the most difficult part of this to um, articulate and to, um, you know, e- even think about because it's one thing, you're right, I mean, for us to adapt and to you know, uh, elevate our homes and live in swamped cities and all that. But, you know, what we're doing to the rest of, of nature, um, and what we're doing to, you know, our world is just, you know, um,
0: it's, it's avoid- hard,
1: to, it's hard, hard to get your mind around.
0: Stan, I think that for me, I think too, that both of these books, though, the way they, they handle the relationship between the present and the future is really interesting. So I'll, I, I'd like you to talk about, you know, you're writing in the present and you're living in the present and you're writing about the future. And both of you are actually in a writing about the future in slightly different ways. So talk about that relationship between the, the present and the future and how, you know, your visions and how our visions of, of the future just is, is it's really important that we actually think about this stuff. <laughs>
2: Well, this is, uh, uh, this is what science fiction does as a genre, and that's why I love science fiction so much. And the way I've been describing it recently is that science fiction works in a double action that is sort of like the glasses that you wear to see 3D movies. These 3D glasses, the two lenses are doing two different things, and it's in your head where the third dimension pops. So for science fiction, one lens is actually about futures that could come to pass. And then the other lens is a metaphor for the way life feels right now. So if you can't get the two lenses to match up, then you say, I don't like science fiction. It gives me a headache the way some people don't like science fiction, uh, don't like 3D movies. But if you can get the two images to come together, you have a very powerful experience, which I think is an experience of history itself and the way that we are on a trajectory, a historical trajectory that's leading somewhere that can affect our our descendants in gigantic ways because we're at some kind of strange crook's point here where there really is a real possibility for a... um, balanced sustainable civilization where all the people and all the animals and plants are all doing well together that's still physically feasible and technologically possible and then there's also hanging over us this extinction event this mass catastrophe which will impact humans with you know many many deaths so we have such a gigantic spread of possibilities from the moment that we're in right now that uh, science fictional thinking is one way of kind of coming to terms with it, and not just being confused, but actually sorting activities into utopian or dystopian, into our hopes and into our fears. So this is wh- how I think of science fiction right now as a as a it's a game, it's a it's an art form, but it's also a tool for thinking about history and about uh, uh, what we should be doing. It's a kind of an existential uh, exercise.
0: Jeff, tell us how you feel about uh, writing journalism uh, about the future. I mean, your book opens with a scene set in 2037.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, the, what I'm trying to do in my book is um, kind of try to conjure up and try to uh, understand and articulate the, the idea that we're, with the decisions we're making now, w- whether that it's whether it's from continuing to allow you know massive amounts of building on the coastline in Florida to not uh, to you know to um, not cutting carbon emissions, you know pulling out of paris, or whatever all the sort of things that are happening now, we're creating a future for ourselves. we're we're building a future now in our decisions that we're making. And I think the goal of my book is to try to is to try to give a sense of that, that by, that by, you know, um, electing Donald Trump and pulling out of Paris and, um, you know, having an EPA administrator who's pushing fossil fuels and trying to burn more coal and all these kinds of things, we are, you know, changing the odds for something to happen, uh, for example, with West Antarctic Ice Sheet. And we don't know where these tipping points for these threshold systems in the climate are. But we know that the more CO2 we put in the atmosphere, the higher the likelihood is that, um, you know, this kind of thing will happen. So I, I it's a it's a weird thing. But my goal is to is to is to try to communicate how we're building the future at at this very moment, you know, and, and it it's inspired for me, not so much, you know, reading science fiction and some of it, but also. Um, you know, climate modeling, I mean, this is what science is doing all the time right now, is they're modeling scenarios, they're, they're putting in inputs about all different kinds of things, CO2 emissions or whatever, and trying to see what kind of world it creates. And for me, I guess the computer modeling is a, is, is a kind of, um, a, a kind of inspiration, because I'm trying to do the same thing, except in a more complex economic, social, and psychological way. You know, these are the inputs that we're putting in now. And this is the kinds of future that we're creating. The new book by Jeff
0: Goodell is The Water Will Come. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you for having me. And the new book by Kim Stanley Robinson is New York 2140. Thank you for joining me, Stan.
2: My pleasure, Rick. And good to meet you, Jeff. Good to meet
0: you, too. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, Trashotron.com slash agony.